We are going to dive into the book of Esther this morning. It's an Old Testament book. Uh, if you uh, find kind of the last of the historical books, so if you find Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, if you get to Job or Psalms or something, you've gone too far. So back up a little bit, all right? Uh, the book of Esther, we're going to be diving into uh, along the way. Uh, and as we do, we're just uh, praying that God will, will teach us some things, uh, particularly about, about standing up. You know, history abounds uh, with evidence uh, that humanity is capable of doing incredible evil. I mean, you just read history. Sometimes that evil is very active. But sometimes we can participate in evil passively. And that's part of kind of the sad record of humanity as well. Some of our perhaps more shameful moments have been moments like slavery and the Holocaust or in our country, segregation. When many people perhaps weren't actively engaging in evil and yet passively they were helping to facilitate it by not standing up, by not speaking up, by not, not being a force for good. And part of, part of what Esther reminds us is that, that, that evil, evil is not just something that we, we just avoid having to actively participate in, that, that God has more for us than that. It's not just don't actively do evil, but at times following God means standing up. Standing up against evil, standing up against things that are wrong, not being a passive bystander and for a multitude of reasons that we can convince ourselves, I'm too busy, it's not my fight, I'm just going to lay low, keep safe, that we don't engage, we don't stand up along the way. The book of Esther is a book about evil, about evil being actively pursued and perpetrated, but it's also about an incredible woman. And her cousin slash parent, Mordecai, two people who chose to stand up in the face of evil, who didn't just kind of think, how can I take care of myself? How do I lay low and get through this? But they stood up. They stood up against evil. It is an incredibly challenging book to teach from. And what I have found in some research, while there's lots of commentaries, uh, a lot of messages that have been preached kind of pick and choose, and maybe uh, a lot of sermons on the, the, the passage, if I perish, I perish. But uh, sometimes we, we can avoid uh, the, the book as a whole. It's a challenging book for a number of reasons. First of all, God is not mentioned by name in the entire book. God is not mentioned by name in the entire book. And you also don't find any direct New Testament uh, quotes uh, from the book of Esther. And because the, the name of God not being mentioned in the book, because of no New Testament references, there are some who even struggled with its uh, canonicity, it being in, in the Scripture. And yet, while God is not mentioned in the book, I hope that what we'll see in the midst of our, our study over these next few weeks is that God is all over this book, uh, and God's hand is, is evident at work all throughout uh, the book. It's a challenging book because as you look at it, how people are treated, particularly the treatment of women, and it is, it is horrible. 
And it's quite honestly even a reminder in recent days in our culture where the issue of uh, particularly how powerful men sometimes use that power to use and abuse women has been unfortunately the tale of humanity for century upon century. It's a troubling book because of the treatment of women. But in the midst of all of those challenges, there's a challenging example. The example of Esther, who unwillingly was victimized by an unbearable situation. But by God's grace, she stood up and she made a difference. And that's, that's the example that we want to, to be challenged by and learn from over these next few weeks. Even in a situation where perhaps you didn't look for it, you didn't ask for it, you were perhaps a victim in the midst of an unbearable situation, how can I, by God's grace, stand up and make a difference. If there is a central theme to this uh, book, it would simply be the God's invisible providence or his sovereignty over all creation, that God is in charge, that God is the one who is orchestrating. God is at work in the midst of events, bringing about his purposes, his way, his will. The scripture affirms this over and over again in both the New and the Old Testament. In Romans 11, Paul just uh, kind of erupts into, into praise. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. That there is this God who is, who is overall, whose knowledge and wisdom is, is so deep and, in, and so beyond us, and his ways are, are not fully understandable. Uh, but his, his judgments, though not totally searchable, are righteous and true. In the Old Testament, in a similar vein, when the prophet Daniel was dealing with uh, uh, a foreign uh, a king, that king uh, uh, came to a point where his pride was, was broken by Almighty God. Nebuchadnezzar came to a realization of who God is in his sovereignty and in his providence and his power. At the end of the days, he said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And there is that, that theme throughout Scripture and throughout this book of Esther of the, the providence or the sovereignty of God. Francis Shaver perhaps put it most succinctly, he is there and he is not silent. Wherever you are, wherever there is a situation, wherever there is a circumstance, God is there. And even though you may not yet be able to fully understand it or see it, he is not silent. God is at work 
work. And so with that kind of central theme in mind, I want us to kind of step into the story. And like all stories, you, you need to start in the beginning. And in chapter 1, uh, we're introduced uh, to some characters. We'll meet some others uh, along the way. But it begins with, uh, with, with a powerful king. A powerful king, verse 1 of chapter 1. In the days of Asuerus, the Asuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces in those days when King Asuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast. Here is Asuerus, who is this, this king of, of Persia, the Medes and the Persians. They've come to power. They've kind of uh, removed the Babylonians as, as a strong uh, power. The Babylonians were the war, ones who captured Jerusalem and deported uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, some of them are, are now still uh, in Persia. Uh, he reigned, uh, just to give some historical context, he reigned from 486 to 465 B.C. The events in the book of of Esther kind of unfold basically over a decade, 483, the third year, as we just saw, the third year of his reign to about 473 B.C. To kind of put this in, in biblical context, the events of Esther kind of unfold about halfway through the book of Ezra. So in the book of Ezra, you have some, of, some folks beginning to return to Jerusalem. The Persians had a, a, a little more uh, leniency, a, a little more uh, flexibility. They they allowed some people to return where they had been uh, deported and captured and dragged off. And so there had been already the first return to Jerusalem. A second return under Ezra would, would come, that would come after the events in the book of Esther, and then later still would be the work of Nehemiah in rebuilding the wall. So just to give kind of that context. So you have this incredibly powerful king. And he's in the midst of, of throwing some banquets. And, and we, we're not going to take time to read all of these verses, but, but the banquets that he's throwing go on and on. In fact, it's in verse 4. It says uh, they were displaying his greatness for many days, 180 days. Now, that's a party, isn't it? <laughs> that's a party, right? There's this series of banquets that's un, unfolding. And part of what historians feel like is taking place at this point, he is getting ready. He is gearing up to try to take on uh, Greece. His father had gone there, had been defeated, uh, and so he's in some sense trying to avenge his father's loss. And so part of what he's needing to do is to display his greatness, his power, to kind of get, get some folks on board. And so over the course of 180 days, having all of these people coming in and out, just displaying the greatness and the power of his kingdom as he prepares to go to battle. In the midst of that, his wife, uh, Queen Vashti, is, is uh, having, uh, we're told in verse 9, uh, having a, a banquet, uh, a feast for the women in the palace that belong to the king. And now here comes that fateful turning point early, kind of sets up the, the rest of the story, the queen's refusal and banishment. If you follow along, and we won't read all of those verses this morning, uh, there comes this moment when the king, feeling all of his power and perhaps feeling uh, a little too much uh, alcohol and other things along the way, uh, wants to bring the queen, bring Queen Vashti before the king and her royal crown in order to show the people 
and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now, we're not sure everything that's involved in that, but we have to take from, from the text that what he was asking her to do was, oh, was beyond the realm of reason. It was perhaps lewd and, and inappropriate at best. And she rightly refused to be displayed that way before a leering group of intoxicated men. But her refusal put the king in a tough spot. So here he is. He's displaying his power and his greatness and his wife won't even come and do what he says. And so he gathers with his, his counselors and, and who knows what, what they've been uh, up to as well. And, and they come up with this, this plan that, that she'll set this bad precedent that will ripple throughout the kingdom. And so has to come down hard. And so he, he comes up with this because of her refusal. She's banished never again to come into his presence that no longer will she be the, the queen, and so she is banished. And then as you turn to chapter 2, there is uh, a plan for a new queen. But I, I want you to take note again, one of the things we miss sometimes in reading Scripture, we miss, we miss time frames. Remember the, the, the first chapter opened up in the third year of his reign. By the time you get to chapter 2 and this plan for a new queen, we're in the seventh year of his reign. And now sometimes it's like, well, we just turned the page, right? So it should be happening real quick. But this is a four-year period. What happened during that four-year period? Well, what historians tell us is that was probably the time when he went to try to take on Greece, tried to invade, was repelled. And so he's back in Susa, kind of licking his wounds, if you will, uh, from a military defeat. And while as this king he has access to lots of concubines, he, there's something, there, there's that missing. He does not have what he once had with his wife. And so his counselors, perhaps seeing and sensing this, devise a plan. And it begins to, to unfold there in the first uh, few verses of, uh, of chapter 2 as he, he's remembering his, his wife. Verse 2, then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Let the king appoint uh, officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under the custody of Haggai, the, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So what's taking place? They, uh, they come and they, they, they say, we're going to gather all of these, these beautiful young women from across the kingdom. Uh, whether they want to come or not, they're going to be gathered and they're going to be taken and they're going to enter into this, this contest, if you will. Uh, a contest where they're going to go through this beautification treatment and perhaps be taught some protocol and those sort of things. And then they're going to, to basically spend a night with the king and he he is going to select a woman. Now, some may think, well, maybe this was like a contest you would voluntarily enter. Absolutely not. And while there may have been some that may have been ambitious and saw it as an opportunity, uh, the, the, the words in the, in the Hebrew there uh, kind of speak to the forcefulness of that gathering and that these women were taken against their will. Because please remember, after they've been with the king, they can never be with any other man. 
And so as they're taken, while they may have one night with the king, they'll never have a family. They'll never have a spouse. They'll never have their life back again. And so into this fray is a young Jewish girl known as Esther. And she's forced into this unbearable situation. And in the midst of these troubling circumstances, we learn a valuable lesson. We learn that we have a God who moves in mysterious ways and in mundane days. He moves in mysterious ways. None of us would have probably ever come up with this kind of plan to get Esther in a position where she would ultimately be able to rescue uh, the Jewish people from extermination. God moves in mysterious ways and and in mundane days, a day that seemed like any other, she probably got up and started to go about her business and do what she was normally doing and all of a sudden to be taken from the life she knew and thrust into a a whole new life where she didn't know what the outcome was going to be. But God was at work in mysterious ways and in the midst of mundane days. And from this uh, first section of this book, I I want us to to, to see three things that I hope will be applicable to our lives. The first is simply this. God places us in the right places at the right time for his purposes. God knows how to place us in the right places at the right times for his purposes. Verse 5, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadasha, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. God knows how to place us in the right places at the right times. For his purposes. There's a couple things I want you to, 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 to take out of this. The first is God knows right where you are. God knows right where you are. There are times in all of our lives that perhaps we go through a season, perhaps we're walking in the midst of something, and maybe we begin to wonder as it kind of life feels like it's falling apart, or what we know has been torn away and taken away from us, and, and we don't understand what God's doing or why He's doing it. And we come back to those moments, and we, we, just, we begin to feel our smallness. We begin to feel maybe our insignificance that that this planet is just a little itty 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 bitty speck in this humongous universe and I am just one little speck of billions of specks on this speck in the universe and maybe you can begin to wonder does God really know does God really care 
Does God know where I'm at? Does God know what I'm going through? Does God know the situation and the circumstance? I mean, maybe I got lost in the shuffle of managing the universe, right? God knows right where you are. He knows right where you are. He knows where you are physically. He knows where you're at geographically. He knows where you're at spiritually. He knows where you're at mentally and financially. And what Esther reminds us is that God is not limited in where he works. God works in prisons and in palaces. God works in urban centers and in the rural shepherd's field. God can take a guy from prison, Joseph, and put him in charge of a nation. God can take an exiled Jewish woman who would have absolutely no power and put her in the right place at the right time for his purposes. We all go through seasons when we wonder, God, do you know where I am at? But God knows exactly where you're at. He doesn't lose anybody. And not only does he know right where you are at, but God's timing is rarely the same as our timing, is it? And God knows where you're at, but, but there are times we have a different timetable than God does. Okay, God, I'm here, and, and maybe we feel like, God, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready for something different. I'm ready for something bigger. I'm ready for something bolder. I'm ready for a, a change. I'm ready, God. I'm ready. God knows where you're at. He knows when you're ready and when you're not. God knows what's coming around the bend and how to get you ready for what's next. There are times we feel like, God, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready for that promotion. I'm ready for that position. I'm ready to take on that, that responsibility. And God says, no, you're not ready. On the other hand, there are times when we feel like, whoa, 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 God, no, I am not ready. That's too big. That's too hard. That's too difficult. That's too time-consuming. It requires a skill set I don't have. It requires the part passions I don't have. I, on and on our excuses go. God knows where you're at, and his timing is rarely the same as our timing. And so when Moses says, I'm ready to set the people free, and he ends up fleeing the country because he couldn't do it in his own strength. And he spends the next 40 years on the backside of the desert. How many times on the backside of a desert do you wonder if God knows where you're at? And then when God's timing is right, he comes and says, Moses, now is the time. And now Moses says, I'm not ready. I'm not good enough. I don't, I'm not articulate enough. Don't you know my track record? God knows right where you're at. And I can just about guarantee you that his timing is rarely, rarely, rarely going to be the same as your timing. But what Esther, what Moses, what Joseph, what a whole host of, of biblical testimony tells us 
is that God places you in the right places at the right times for his purposes. Second truth, God connects us with other people for his purposes. God connects us for other people uh, with other people for his purposes. So as, as Esther is taken into this world that she would not have signed up for, uh, we find that, that God is at work even in the, the people that are there. Look at verses 9 through 11. And the young woman pleased him. This is Hegai, he, he the, the, the eunuch in charge of the women, and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics, her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Skip down to verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what he gave the king's eunuch who had charge of the women advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Now what we begin to see here in Esther is that God is not only sovereign over circumstances, his providence extends also to people. And God can, can connect us with other people for his purposes. So Esther's in this, this large pool of, of women. And, and I, I, I don't want to be sexist here because I think some of it will be true whether it's men or women here. But can you imagine for a moment what was going on there? Can you imagine what was happening behind the scenes? Can you imagine the, the backbiting, the, the positioning, the politicking? Can you imagine uh, the women who, who saw this as their one and only, perhaps, opportunity, and they were going to do whatever it took to be able to get into the best position to possibly be the queen? All of this is, is taking place. And there are probably all these people who want this a whole lot more than Esther, who didn't want to be there in the first place. But God, God can connect you with other people for his purposes. And so God grants her favor with Hege, the eunuch in charge of the women. And he, he gives her opportunity, gives her direction, gives her resources, gives her access to things she would not have had access to. You see, God can grant us favor with people. He can grant you favor with people. And for that, our response has to be gratitude. Just be grateful. And my guess is there are many, many of us in the room that we would look back over the, the course of our life and we would, we would look back and say, God, I don't, I don't really understand it. And maybe even in the moment, I didn't really appreciate it. But God, you granted me favor with that person. That there was that person, maybe it was a teacher, maybe it was a coach, maybe it was a relative, maybe it was somebody that lived in your neighborhood, maybe it was somebody that, that saw something in you when you were first starting out in the work environment, and they began to invest in you. They gave you uh, some opportunities you would not have had. They, they invested in you in ways that were far beyond what you deserved. God granted you favor. 
And God used that favor to propel you forward to where he wanted you to be. And in those moments, we, some of us just need to be honest, right? Some of us need to be honest and look back and, and you know, kind of say, it, it, it wasn't because I'm all that. It, it, I, did, I wasn't granted that favor because I'm so likable. It was the grace of God. It was the providential hand of God. And in those moments, as I look back, I, I look back at some of those people, and I'm so grateful for them. And I'm so grateful that God granted us favor with some of those people. And along with that favor comes opportunity. That God can give us opportunity through people. And if God gives opportunity, we need to be open to that. We need to be open. That, that he gave was, was giving Esther opportunity that others did not have. And he was, he was granting her some things that she would have never been able to get on her own. And some of us can look back and say, you know, God opened up some doors. God opened up some doors of opportunity through people. And my response has to be, I need to be open to that. I need to be open to that. Sometimes I can feel like I don't deserve that. I'm not good enough, or I haven't, I haven't paid enough, or, or, or I haven't you know, done enough time, or whatever it might be. And God, for his purposes, may open a door of opportunity. It's not maybe not even one you sought, maybe not, not one that you aspired to, but God opened the door. God opened the door of opportunity. And in that moment, the proper response is to say, God, I'm open. And not every opportunity is, is God sent. And we certainly need his wisdom and discernment in that. But God can give us opportunity through people. And so we have to be open. God, I, I, I'm, I'm open to the opportunities you may want to open up before me. He can grant us favor with people. Be grateful. He can give us opportunity through people. Be open. But we also see displayed in Esther the fact that God can guide us through people, and we need to be teachable. So you have Hege giving her counsel. Uh, do this, don't do this. Uh, this is, the, this is the, the, the cosmetics to wear. This is what you should take in when you go to the king. Don't do this. Her, her uh, uncle, surrogate parent, uh, Mordecai, uh, counseled her, don't, don't reveal your nationality right now. Just keep that close to the vest for the time being. And she listened to that. She, she took counsel from others. God sends people across our paths who can guide us. And in those moments, we have to be teachable. We have to be teachable to say, God, I'm moldable. I'm teachable by you. I've shared with some of you before, I have tried in the past couple years to, to be uh, very conscious of, of walking into some situations, whether it's with somebody I know or somebody I'm just meeting for a first time or a room full of folks that I really don't hardly know at all. And, and just to kind of say a little prayer uh, within myself or up to the Lord uh, to, in the midst of that and just to say, God, you know, so walking into this situation, whether it's one-on-one -on -one with one person or whether it's a, a room full of people, just say, God, uh, you know, as I walk in today, Lord, help me to be teachable. Help me to learn something from this person. 
And I may honestly disagree with 90% of, of who they are and what they stand for, but God, I can learn from anybody. And so God, help me to have the posture of a student today. And God, as I walk into this, this situation, Lord, show me how to add value to them. Show me how to, to, to bless them. Help me to adopt the posture of a servant as I interact with them today. And it may be that uh, it's, it's some physical act. It may be just uh, the gift of listening. It may be uh, speaking a word or connecting them with some knowledge or information that they don't have. Or it may be even helping to connect them with a person that they don't have. I don't know how, but God, as I walk in, how can I add value today? How can I be a servant to them? And thirdly, I'm just say, God, how can I represent you today? In this encounter, in this situation, in this circumstance, how can I represent you today? Help me to adopt the posture of an ambassador today. God, I, I don't know how you want me to represent you in this situation, but God, how do I represent you today? And so to begin to walk into these situations with this confidence that God is at work, that God knows how to connect us with people for his purposes. And so I go in with almost that expectation, and I, I'm trying to kind of train myself to do that more consistently, to say, God, help me to go in as a student. Help me to go in as a servant. Help me to go in as an ambassador of yours today. And God, let's see what you might want to do as you connect me with this person for your purposes. God can place us in the right place at the right time for his purposes. God connects us with other people for his purposes. But a third truth I want you to see is that God may entrust us with positions of power and influence for his purposes. And that is exactly what happens to Esther. We already uh, looked uh, at verse 15. Let's pick up verse 16. And when Esther was taken to King Asuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the providences and gave gifts with royal generosity. Well, what's taking place here? God has sovereignly taken this Jewish exile orphan who did not have parents to raise her, and he takes her and places her in this incredible position of power and influence. She could have never gotten there on her own. She probably never aspired to that position. And yet God entrusted her with this position of power and influence for his purposes. And what this reminds me of is the fact that God is not limited by the things that we think limit us. God is not limited by the things that we think limit us. Some of us have given ourselves a pass. Let's just call it an excuse, right? We've given ourselves an excuse and we've said, well, God, I, I, I can't do that because I didn't grow up in the right family. God, I have this in my past. I didn't go to the right school. I don't have the right connections. 
I don't have the money that other people have. I don't have fill in the blank. What's your go-to excuse for telling God you can't? God is not limited by the things that we think limit us. <laughs> he can take Joseph from prison and put him in charge of the Egyptian empire. <laughs> he can take Moses from the backside of the desert with no power, no influence, and use him to free a people. He can take a shepherd boy whose own brothers don't think enough of him to even invite him to the, the dinner where they're going to talk about a king and make him the shepherd king. He can take a simple peasant girl engaged to be married and make her the mother of Emmanuel, God with us. God is not limited by the things that we think limit us. Sometimes we tell God, I can't. I can't because. And God just smiles. <laughs> you think that limits me? <laughs> You think that prevents me from fulfilling my purposes in and through your life? God is not limited by the things that we think limit us. Power and influence are tools to be used for God's purposes. God did not put Esther in that position so that she wouldn't ever have to worry about where her next meal was coming from. He didn't put her in that position because she liked fine clothing. He didn't put her in that position because she liked massages, right? He put her in that position for his purposes. If God entrusts you, and there are many, many, many of you in this room right here, right now, that God has entrusted you with power and influence, and that may be knowledge, that may be a position, that, that may be uh, monetary, uh, that, that may be the people that you network with, but you have power and influence. And to understand that those are tools to be used, not just for your comfort, but for God's purposes. One of my favorite leadership quotes from Andy Stanley, I try to come back to this one again and again, is this. Leadership is a stewardship. It's temporary, and you're accountable. If God has entrusted you with a position of power and influence, it's a stewardship. You are entrusted with it. It comes from God to you, through you, for His purposes. And mark it down, it's temporary. It's temporary. And you say, hey, hey, I'm secure in this position. I've been in this position for 10 years now. I got this, right? Talk to me in 100 years, right? It's temporary. It's temporary. One change in the economy can take it away in a moment. 
One change in the org chart above, you can wipe it out. One trip to the doctor's office and it is no more. One trip down the interstate and one driver texting. And that position is no more. It's a stewardship. It's temporary. Temporary maybe 40 years, I don't know. But it's temporary. And you and I are accountable. Whatever God has placed in your hands in terms of power and influence, it is a stewardship. It is temporary. And you are accountable for what you do with it for the season that you have it placed in your hands. God may entrust us with positions of power and influence for His purposes. So we kind of wrap up this introductory study. I want to just bring to our our remembrance some quick reminders. The first is, even in tumultuous circumstances, God is at work. Even in circumstances that seem totally whacked up and totally out of control, God is at work. Can you imagine how upside down Esther's world felt? And you know, thank God I lose my parents. I just kind of get a life together. I've got Mordecai investing in my life, and I've got hopes and dreams that, that only go this far because that's all I think I can hope and dream in the current circumstances I'm in. And then God just rips it all away and thrusts her into a place that she would have never chosen. And she's not sure what the outcome's going to be. And some of you are there this morning. Your world has been turned upside down kind of like a diver in deep water that's gotten disoriented. You're not even sure which way's up right now. And in the midst of the tumultuous circumstance, I have to come back and remind myself, God, you are at work. You are at work. And God, you are at work whether I see it or not. Whether I understand it or not. Whether I get it today or not, whether I clearly see how all these parts are going to weave together or not, God, even in the midst of tumultuous circumstances, even when I don't see it, you are at work. And there are some of you that need to be reminded of that this morning. Even when you don't see it, God is at work. Third reminder. God is at work in the ordinary as well as the extraordinary. God is at work in the ordinary as well as the extraordinary. Again, remember the the time frames here. In the third year of his reign, in the seventh year of his reign, the the book of Esther unfolds over, over, over a decade here. Sometimes when we read the Bible, it's, we kind of almost have like a sitcom mentality, right? Well, if God's at work, this is supposed to be tied up in a nice bow in 30 minutes, right? Occasionally, there'll be like a two-part episode, right? Life doesn't work that way. God is at work not just in those extraordinary moments, not just when the bush is burning, 
but in 40 years in the desert. Not just the day they put the crown on your head, but the day you lost your parents. The day that you got up and did what you did the day before and the day before and the day before. Because we have a God who works in mysterious ways and even in the most mundane of days. Sometimes when we read the Bible, even the Gospels, it just seems like one adventure after another. It's kind of like an action-packed movie, right? But there were a lot of ordinary days. A lot of ordinary days. But God works in mysterious ways and even in the midst of mundane days. I was reminded of that by a story unfolded just a couple weeks ago. Maybe you saw it on the news or online. It's a story of a young man by the name of Walter Carr. Walter is getting ready to finish up an associate's degree and enter into the Marines. And, well, maybe I'll let ABC News tell you a little bit of his story. Finally tonight here, America Strong, a young man working, going to school. He wants to be a Marine one day. And just listen to what happened to him on the night before his first job. Walter Carr of Homewood, Alabama, was getting ready to start his first day on the job, his first job. But the night before he started with that moving company, his car broke down. So Walter started walking 20 miles to get there, starting at midnight. And he made it to the home he was supposed to pack up, the Lamy family of Pelham, Alabama. It was two days later his boss at Bellhop Moving walked Walter over to a group of cars. One of those cars was about to be his. This is my car. I'd like it to be your car. I really think that you know, it's in much better hands with you than it is with me. I couldn't uh, think of uh, a better way to, to part ways with this and put it to better use. Walter says he hopes his story helps others. And right there, the family at the home he walked to all night long to help move. You've changed all of our lives. Walter, you have no idea how many lives you've changed and inspired. You have no idea. Walter tonight on his way with help from the family he moved and from the boss he moved with his determination. Walter, an example for us all. Thanks for watching here tonight. I'm David Muir. I hope to see you right back here tomorrow. Good night. God can place you at the right place at the right time, and he can connect you with people for his purposes. <laughs> and he may entrust you with things you never thought possible. See, Walter was getting ready to start the job, and his car broke down. He didn't have a way to get to work. So he Googled it, right? That's what we do, right? You Google Maps. 20 miles. Google told him how long it would take to walk. And so he slept for a few hours, got up at midnight, started walking. So he would be there on time for the job. What you didn't see reflected in the story that's in the print edition is that as he'd gotten several miles into the trip, as he was getting weary, and remember his job is moving, right? So he's going to walk 20 miles and he's going to move furniture all day. Some policemen see him and they pick him up and they hear his story. 
And they're so moved by that that they take him to breakfast. They feed him. Another officer kind of meets him and ends up giving him a ride the rest of the way to the house. Because God can grant you favor with people you don't even know or haven't even met yet. And he gets there before any of the other workers and meets the family. And the, the mother particularly is just enthralled by his story. She sets up a GoFundMe page thinking that maybe we can gather some funds to help repair his car. She reaches out to the CEO of the company. The CEO says, we can do better than that. Because God can entrust you with things that you need for his purposes. And the print edition of that story, some of the closing words are these. He's like the poster boy for no excuses. He's just got this deep faith that he wasn't alone. Carr said he's so happy and that he had touched people with his story. And he knows he was blessed to be able to bless others. God is at work, whether you know it or not. Whether you see it or not, God works in mysterious ways, broken down cars and 20-mile hikes. And in mundane days, and sometimes all it takes is a man or a woman who says, God, I don't see it yet, but I trust you're at work. And so I'm going to take the first step. And I'm going to take the next step and the next step and the next step of obedience to you. And I'm going to trust you to work out all the rest. We have a God who works in mysterious ways. And even on mundane days. Let's pray to him together, please. Oh, Father, thank you <laughs> that in your sovereignty... You included this extraordinary story of this extraordinary woman in your word. Thank you, Father, that she reminds us that we have a God who is at work, who knows where we're at, who knows what he's doing, whose timing is not always ours, but is always right. And Father, I just, I, I pray today, Lord, that uh, for some of us in this room right here, right now, we might be stretched, we might be challenged, we might be encouraged by this example, by this truth lived out. And so, Father, today, would you graciously meet us again in these moments? Would you help us to feel safe enough to be honest to tell you where we're struggling? Where we're struggling to believe that you're in control and that you're at work in our life right here, right now. Father, help us to do what you've placed before us in this moment. to be fully obedient, fully yielded to you, and to trust you with the rest. 
I'm just going to ask you just to sit before the Lord in that posture of prayer for just a few minutes.